Well, good morning. My name is uh, Daniel, one of the pastors here. It's going to be a privilege to get into the Gospel of Mark again. If you've got your Bible, you can feel free to open up to uh, Mark chapter 2. As you're churning there, I'd like to let you know we're going to be thinking about uh, the physician's friendship. You've kind of seen the theme of friendship through some of the songs we've been singing um, and how he ate with sinners and what his relationship was like with them. But uh, before we, we read the passage we're going to be looking at, I wanted to start by looking at a few pieces of artwork, and uh, you, I think you'll catch on why. Many of these are, are familiar. Um, one of them, at least, is familiar. The others are kind of satires of it. Um, Norman Rockwell made a lot of different uh, paintings, and a lot of them are very, very familial. And one of them uh, that he made is kind of an iconic one. It's called Freedom from Want. It's a picture of a Thanksgiving meal uh, during one of the world wars. And uh, sometimes if you look at it right here, um, many times people look at it and it almost looks too perfect. Do your, do your turkeys ever look quite like that? Grandma and grandpa are there, obviously the whole family. You know, some say that uh, Norman Rockwell is right there peering at us from the bottom corner. Plenty of fruit. And many times when, we, when people see this, this picture, it seems... Uh, a little too perfect. A little, the people are, the little perfect people are too perfect. The turkey's too perfect. And so for uh, uh, many reasons, people made a lot of satires off of this. I think it's for the same reason that when people think about a Christian church, they think that the Christian church is kind of made up of a lot of perfect people, supposedly perfect and plastic people. And, and so because of that, there's a lot of satires that, that this piece of artwork has, has inspired. I'm going to show you two of the parodies. There's, again, there's a ton of them. Um, the first one is uh, the Simpsons Thanksgiving picture. If you uh, are familiar with the Simpsons, you'll enjoy it more. If you're not, you'll enjoy it less. If you laugh a lot, don't feel bad. Please do not. Um, notice Homer, instead of lovingly serving the family, he's reaching around Marge. Before the turkey dinner has even reached the table, he's pinching off a piece for himself. <laughs> Some people deeply identify with Homer's selfishness, clearly, you know, those who are being honest, at least. Uh, there's already a food fight going on between Bart and Lisa. Uh, Aunt Selma is, uh, is already eating before the turkeys even reach the table. Barney, in his usual form, is doing one of his epic burps. Grandpa is sleeping on his plate. You look at that, and... Uh, Many people say, well, that's more realistic. Welcome to the real world, a, a world where people are deeply flawed um, and where people are just kind of messy. Uh, and uh, that's what many of these parodies inspire. Another parody of, the, of Norman Rockwell's work, look at this next one. I like to call this one, I don't have an official title, I like to call it The, the Hipster's Thanksgiving. I think that's what's going on here. Um, notice the turkey's entirely wrapped in bacon. I'm not here to give you cooking tips this morning, but I wanted you to at least notice that. I think that's, I think that's a great idea. Uh, drinks are at the table. There's a wide variety of hairdos and hairstyles. Uh, one guy particularly is, is really tatted up. Um, you get an urban background as you look through the window, a little bit of modern art on the, on the wall. Um, and notice how everyone is in their 20s or 30s because hipsters know that you're always in your 20s. Or 30s. Welcome to the real world, where everything's uh, just right with me and my, my friends, or at least those who are my friends and younger than me. 
Anyway, it's interesting to see, you see these parodies, and, and in many ways, I think they're, they try to deal with a, with a flawed and diverse world that we actually live in. And when it comes to uh, the pictures we get in God's Word, sometimes people, when we read them, it can sound like it's just too perfect. Like it's just perfectly set up, and yeah, of course, God's, God's love's a perfect people, and everything's, everything's good to go. And many times, people can create caricatures of what God's Word represents and what it actually communicates. And uh, many times, people who come to the church for the first time feel like they've got to put on a, a perfect face, and that they've got to have the turkey perfectly roasted, otherwise they can't walk through the door. Any perfectly toasted, roast, roasted turkeys at home today? All right, I think most of us are going to be figuring out what we're going to do for lunch right afterwards. But there's a, there's a way where people can think that's what Christians are like. And, and I think sometimes as a Christian community, we can convey that. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, he has a chapter called Confession and Communion. And in, the, and in it, he talks about how our confession as being sinners is what our communion is based on. And in it, he, he, he talks about this pious community that people feel like the church can often be. You have it in your bulletin, if you look at the front of your bulletin, um, he said this, that the pious community permits no one to be a sinner. Hence, all have to conceal their sins from themselves and from the community. We're not allowed to be sinners. Many Christians would be unimaginably horrified if a real sinner were suddenly to turn up among the pious. A real sinner. Not just like your kind or my kind, but a real sinner. And so we remain alone with our sin, trapped in lies and hypocrisy, for we are, in fact, sinners. Good insight here, and then we need to hear it. If you remember, um, Ben introduced this kind of section of what we've been looking at in the Gospel of Mark as, as kind of a ser- three sermons on sin. And uh, three weeks ago, Ben looked at the leper, and you're going to see some of the effects of sin, how sin's deep, devastating effects show us that Jesus alone can really deliver us. Even when our skin is healed, as it were, the sin is so deep that Jesus alone can really absorb the effects of sin. Last week, we looked at the forgiveness of sin, how Jesus has authority to forgive, but forgiveness is so needed and so costly that it actually demands Jesus. He's the only one who can actually fully forgive. And today, there's kind of a crossroads of those two realities, the idea of Christ having the authority to forgive sins and how deep the effects of sins are. And here, we get to see the physician's friendship with sinners. We get to see that Jesus is willing to befriend sinners and to relate with us in a way that is incredibly life-giving, that he was willing to live in a sinful world and be with a sinful people for their sake more than for his sake. So as we look at the passage, I want you to know there really are two very strong responses to what Jesus does here. One was it caused a lot of joy, and the other caused a lot of resistance. And I think both those will be going on in in all of our hearts to some extent. Some, Some of us will be honest and say, this is a passage that gives me a lot of hope for myself and for others, some of us will resist it. And actually, there's a mixture in, in each of our hearts. Some of us will really have a wall up and say, that, that might describe somebody else, but that's not how I would respond. We've got to really recognize that the good things and the bad things in this passage are true of each one of us to some extent. So I'd like to read with you Mark 2. If you've got your Bible, again, turn to Mark 2. So we'll start with verse 13. Where we're going to be going is we're going to look at a couple things here in this passage. One is we're going to look at how Jesus treats sinners, how he treats sinners, what people say about it, what Jesus says about it, and then how the physician can change us. So again, how Jesus treats sinners, what people say about it, what Jesus says about it, and then how 
The physician can change us. Read this with me, uh, Mark 2. We'll, we'll start with verse 13. It says, he, that is Jesus, he went out again beside the sea. And all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Lord, we want to together praise you that you came into this world, and we want to just say loud and clear at the front end that we appreciate that you would be a physician for human souls, that you would be willing to speak truth and do it lovingly. We ask you, Lord, that you would help us to learn from your example, to follow your example of how you treated sinners. Give us, Lord, larger hearts than we have on our own. God, any kind of hard places where we resist the kind of kindness that we see here, would you change that in our hearts? That we would actually learn, Lord, from you how to follow you in this kind of world. We trust you to do that. Help me, help each one of us open our ears, loose our tongues to praise you and to honor you the way you should. We should. We trust you to do that this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So first off, let's look at how Jesus treats sinners. There's a couple things I wanted to just highlight and kind of look at them in the passage. I want you to see that Jesus initiates uh, the relationship that we see beginning here. Jesus has already done this in the gospel, Mark. Remember the, 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 the fishers that he had come up to the Sea of Galilee, and he had initiated these relationships with them. And here you get this tax collector, and Jesus initiates this relationship. He begins by calling them to follow, him to follow him. And you could ask, how does Jesus begin that? How does he do that? He just literally walks up to the guy and says, follow me. Now, apparently, we don't know, but apparently Matthew probably would have never taken the, he would never have had the gall to actually say, I'm going to follow Jesus. He felt, doubtless, Matthew felt incredibly unworthy to follow Jesus. He wouldn't have assumed that on himself, but Jesus looked him in the eye and he said, you follow me. And he initiated this relationship. He began this thing. Others, when they walked by Matthew, saw a tax booth. Some saw the tax collector. Others saw this man that they hated. But Jesus, when he walked by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Other, other gospels call him Matthew. He's the one who wrote the gospel of Matthew. Now, there's no mark or sign that Matthew was moving in Jesus' direction. What I think is beautiful in the passage is that Jesus is moving in his direction. And that's the thing that made all the difference. Jesus is the one who said, follow me. And he rose, he follows Jesus. And the whole shift moves from, from this sinner at the tax booth to Jesus. And Jesus, as it were, who initiated the relationship, promises to continue it. And I love this, that Jesus, how he treats sinners as he's willing, he's willing to call the most unclean and the most unlikely people. The most unclean and the most unlikely. In fact, Jesus prefers to pick the unlikely candidates for discipleship. If, not in this gospel, but when Matthew wrote his gospel, 
in the, the chap, chapter 9, it describes this, uh, this calling of Matthew. But in the 8th chapter of Matthew, Matthew records something that he obviously learned from Jesus. And he said that, that right before Jesus called Matthew, there was, a, there was a scribe, a wise young scribe who came up to Jesus and said, I'll follow you wherever you go, teacher. Now, that would be quite a privilege. A young scholar who knows his stuff comes to Jesus and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says to him, he says, no, no, no. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head, just like the birds of the air and the, the foxes who have holes. Yeah, they have, they have places. Animals have treatment, but the Son of Man has nowhere that he can actually rest his head. This man who, doubtless a scholar, the scribe, wanted to have a higher place in the world, this devoted scholar, he wanted to go up in the world with Jesus, but Jesus said, no, I hope you understand that the Son of Man is going to go lower than the animals even. He's going to be more mistreated than the foxes that you walk by and that are a nuisance to you. For that reason, I, I don't know if you could follow me. So Matthew records this, and Jesus, he, he deliberately picks the most unlikely people. Now, if you look at yourself, and sometimes we do this. I, I, you've, you've heard this phrase before, maybe, and maybe you've said it. Maybe you've heard other Christians say it. Christians sometimes will say, you know, that person would be a really good Christian. You ever, heard, you ever talk like that or heard friends talk like that? That person would make a very good Christian. What they mean by that usually is that person is basically moral and stable already. That person basically has their act together. But if we were to able to stamp over the top of their orderly life, Christian, what a good name Jesus would have for himself. And we get the whole thing all mixed up. Because Jesus Christ, if, if you were to ask Jesus' disciples who are just learning from and beginning to learn, if you were to ask them the question, do you think that Matthew is a, would be a disciple that would be worth following Jesus? They would probably look at Matthew or, the, or Levi, the son of Alphaeus, as it says here, and they would say, absolutely not. Absolutely not. That man is a tax collector. In fact, let me tell you a couple stories. And they would have had stories. Because remember, this is Mark 2. This is right outside of Capernaum, which is like their home base. It's where all these fishermen are from. Imagine who this man was to them. He had been collecting taxes, not just from uh, other people, but from the fishermen who would walk up from the Sea of Galilee to come to Capernaum. Imagine how many times Peter and Andrew came up with their eight fish, the ones they had been working all day to catch. And they come up, and here's Matthew. And he says, how many fish did you catch today? Uh, eight. Excellent. That'll be one for Rome. And uh, one for me. Thanks so much for doing business. Move right along. Now, this, this, is, this is one that for us, we think tax collector, that's kind of weird. Sure, the IRS, that has to exist. But imagine if you put yourself in, a, in the context that they felt like they were in and that they were in. Imagine if you were, in Af, if you were, from, you were an Afghan collaborator for the U.S. government, okay? You were working with the powers that be that are helping to rule your people. And imagine on top of being a collaborator, you had to collect taxes for the United States government in Kabul. Popular? Not at all. One coin for Matthew, one coin for the world dominating power of Rome. 
One commentator just puts it really simply. He says, you know, he sat by the lake with a table. Around him were probably piles of money, accounting books, and fish, but he had very few friends. Very, very few friends. What we love about Jesus and what doubtless his disciples were shocked by is that he chose to eat with sinners, real, actual sinners that were offensive to them. Eating, eating was much more than just digesting calories or getting food for the body. Eating meant this person is someone I can trust. This person is like family and friends. Jesus treated these unworthy sinners like families and friends. And so he sat and he, it says he reclined at table with them, eating with them. Now, I think that we, when we think about discipleship, we think about how Jesus calls sinners, we make it way, way, way too complex. We think, how could, I, how could I be like Jesus? How could I follow Jesus? And we think, what kind of evangelism strategies do I need so I could be the next Billy Graham? So I can organize, a, a, that's a good idea. We'll call it a crusade. And we'll, not only will we call it a crusade, we'll organize so we can reach all downtown Portland by having thousands come and listen. And then, and then we'll really be doing gospel ministry. Now notice what Jesus does. He reclines at tables with sinners. He eats with them at their place. Jesus' whole life was one great act of ministry, and he deliberately, he deliberately did not make it complex. In fact, if you're looking for a special formula of how the church can grow, he deliberately made it so simple that we foolishly walk by his wisdom. And here he is with his disciples with, with all these many tax collectors and sinners in verse 15, sitting there with Jesus, eating. And there's connecting of these two worlds, Jesus' disciples and these sinners. And they're, they're sitting down at table. And doubtless there were plenty of awkward moments as they thought about the shady dealings they had had with Matthew in the past. And there was plenty of opportunity to learn from Jesus. But Jesus is sitting with them and he was celebrating on purpose. If you've never had a, a meal with people who you feel a little bit uncomfortable with at first, I would, I would encourage you to take up the challenge. A meal with Jesus or a meal with someone who doesn't know Jesus is incredibly, incredibly powerful. Have a barbecue. Have, a, have breakfast. Have, offer somebody coffee. Have a neighborhood potluck. Tim Chester, in a, a book called a, a Meal for Jesus, he said that there's, there's this incredible dynamic when you actually eat a meal with people and you have, a, you have gospel intentionality where you really deeply love this person enough that you long for them to understand the gospel. The conversations, the amount of life on life that goes on there is incredibly powerful. Now, for some of you, you, you may automatically say, that's not me. I'm not going to be the guy who goes home and does that. Now, well, just put yourself in that special category. Say, not for me. We're going to think about some, some, some things that maybe you could do that could be like, like uh, in What About Bob, where they say baby steps. Baby steps to the elevator. Baby steps onto the elevator. Oh, have you ever seen What About Bob? Many of us, when it comes to, Christ, to, to reaching out to other people who don't know Jesus, if we are being honest, we're more like Bob than we are like Jesus. And it is, freaks us out to think of sitting with an actual sinner and eating with them. My friends, I hope that some of us can get freaked out this week. No one said amen. <laughs> so that's sometimes how it rolls in the Christian church, you know? That's sometimes how it rolls. 
Another thing we can learn from Jesus here is that to befriend many, befriend one. Sometimes we think about the dynamic. We think that, man, look at Jesus. He's, he's got, he totally knows what he's doing. I have no clue what I'm doing. It's just way too big. Wait, I mean, I'm supposed to re- preach the gospel to all the nations, and I don't even know how to, I don't even know what to do with my family members. What I'd like you to, to, to see is that Jesus, rather than saying, I'm going to try to reach all the tax collectors of Capernaum, instead he just says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reach one. I'm just going to reach out to Matthew. Just one. And we'll see what happens from there. He, he loved one. He loved Matthew enough to talk to him face-to-face, to sit down and have a meal with them. And I believe that probably one of our greatest errors is that we think that we have to do everything at once, that our vision is so large as Christians that it feels intimidating. We just don't feel like we can actually do the kind of stuff that Jesus is doing here. But I would just like to encourage you, to, if, if there are people in your life who you recognize are real sinners, the real kind, okay, that you, there's probably one of them that you might be able to be comfortable enough to just talk with, to just sit down with, to catch up with, see what God does. One at a time is how Jesus related with sinners. Jesus allowed Matthew to, what I love too, is he allowed him to follow him immediately. He, he didn't, sometimes there's this thought that if, if I have a friend who starts professing faith in Jesus, what well, the best thing to probably do is to get him in a monastery, ASAP, quarantine that sick soul. Get that thing in like a three-day discipleship program, maybe three-week, actually let's make it three months, actually three years. In fact, don't let that person talk to another sinner for three years, put them in a special quarantine section called this person was once an actual sinner. And then, and then we'll let them sit there for three years and learn about Jesus, and then finally after that, they can go and talk to their friends about him. Now notice that, notice that is not what Jesus does. He goes with Matthew to his home, and he allows Levi, the son of Alphaeus, to actually talk with his own friend still. What? The the greatest impact into the kingdom of darkness is someone who has recently been drawn out of darkness and into light. And shame on us if when we see a soul coming to believe in Jesus Christ, we don't say to that person, shout it from the rooftops, buddy. You got friends who need to hear about Jesus. Let me tell you about how that goes. This is how you do it. Let me go with you. Let's talk to them. Let's see what we could do and see if we can raise the trumpet and say there's actually a living God. He's saving and transforming your life. Why do we quarantine souls and act like they need years of discipleship before they can even open their mouths? But friends, I would like to encourage you that if there's somebody who even has a, seems to have a glimmer of interest in Jesus Christ, empower that person to open their mouth for Jesus Christ. A very, a very few of us are comfortable with somebody else doing ministry besides the professionals. And I'll just let you know, I am more and more comfortable because I realize how messy the professionals are. I'm more and more comfortable with people who don't know their A's and Z's and their alphas and their gammas than people who have gone to seminary. Seminary, folks, I, there's a long season of pride that comes along with it. If someone has the humility to just say, I'm going to risk everything for Jesus and all my relationships just to open my mouth, that's somebody you want opening your mouth for Jesus Christ. 
You see in this passage that there are some ways that Jesus related with sinners. He initiates the relationship. Jesus calls the most unlikely and the most unclean. He eats with them. He actually befriends many by befriending one. Another thing that we get to see in this passage is what people say about it. People don't praise Jesus for what he does. People critique him. Notice what it says in verse 16. They just say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I love it. Anytime there's a good thing that happens in the Gospels, there's always bad things that people say about it. If a person's healed, they're like, bad timing, okay? You wait one more hour, you could have healed that guy, but you, you, tie, you mistimed your healing, Jesus. And then here, Jesus is, is eating with sinners and teaching them about himself and teaching them about the kingdom of God. And here they're saying, why does your teacher do that? Now, no, notice what's going on. Is that there's these questions that are asked, but really they're, they're accusations that are being made. They're, they don't even dare to ask Jesus. I love the bravery of the Pharisees. Notice their courage. They don't even turn to Jesus. They turn to his disciples. And the disciples don't have a response, apparently. They don't know what to say about it. After all, the, the Pharisees aren't really looking for information, are they? They're, they have an accusation against Jesus. What are your motives, Jesus? Oh, you're befriending the rich tax collectors. <laughs> you must be a money guy. You must love money, don't you, Jesus? That's why you're befriending them. And they would have never guessed, these Pharisees, that it could be because Jesus loved the sinners, not because he loved their money. They never thought that once that it was a sincere love. Now, oftentimes, this is where, what we do. If you've read the Bible much, you know that the Pharisees, they look stupid again and again and again. And so all of us have like a special net up in our mind where the accusations, that what we see the Pharisees doing is something that you and I would never do. Never. That's them. That's those Pharisees over there, those sinners. I'm not like that, thank you. Now, you notice what's going on. We start distancing ourselves from the real sinners, even the real Pharisees. Many of us claim, I would never act that way. But if you, if you understand, the idea of Pharisee is that it comes from the idea of this separated one, a, a group of people who are separated from the other people, the common people. Maybe they called themselves the good people, the ones who are morally upright. Now, I realize that we often think of religious people who can act like they're morally upright, and, and, but there's also a kind of a, a, of a non-religious Phariseeism that goes around. Some people who, who feel like they have better morals than their other religious neighbors, have a more stable income. Maybe for you, it's, it's your carbon footprint is limited, far more limited than that guy's. I don't have an SUV, thank you. Or maybe it's, it's for you that your recycle bin is, is not as full as that guy's, or that it is more full than that guy's. And we have all these kind of ways where we establish, I'm different from all of these sinners over here. No matter where you're at, we all have a, a group of people we distance ourselves from. We say, I'm not like them, thank you. Those are, the really, those are the really messed up people. But I would like to encourage you to recognize how similar you are to the people you distance yourself from. I think that's what Jesus would encourage us to do in this passage. What kind of sinners are you unlikely to think can be saved? What, kind of, what groups of sinners are you likely to think that Muslim could never come to faith? Is it, is it maybe that drug addict or that alcoholic? I know what he's like. There's no hope for him. Maybe it's an ex-convict who you knew got out of prison last year. Not, I'm not going to ever invite him to church. I don't want to jeopardize this sacred community. 
Maybe it's a guy who you know owns multiple porn shops. I'm not going to open my mouth to him. I don't want to, I don't, I, I just, I just disgusted with that kind of a human being. Maybe it's a prostitute or a pimp. There are groups of people that we are very uncomfortable with God's mercy being shown to. This, uh, this week, I, uh, while unpacking a bunch of our stuff, we just moved this week, and uh, I was listening to Corey Timboom's book, The Hiding Place, while unpacking. And uh, one of the things that struck me was that uh, Corey Timboom's sister would often pray for mercy, not just for her fellow prisoners in the concentration camp, but she would find herself praying for the guards, for God to have mercy on the guards. And her sister, who saw the kind of ruthless beatings and the treatment that her fellow prisoners were getting, Corrie struggled to pray like that. She didn't want the guards to receive mercy from Jesus Christ, but her heart had to be changed. My friends, every one of us have groups of people that we say, this person is beyond the kind of compassion that I know Jesus is willing to give. I wouldn't challenge each one of us that, to recognize that in, that in the Bible and in the minds of the Pharisees, there, there really are two different kinds of people. And then I think the, the New Testament highlights. There are, those, there are those who are the messed up ones who are too messed up, and then there are those who are supposedly upright but who actually have hypocrisy in their heart and life. There isn't a special category of sinless, flawless people. And Jesus has to teach both groups about who he is. And one group is harder to reach. And it's the ones that think that they're good. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See him teaching, Jesus teaching these people. And I love that he doesn't just teach by words, but by deeds. Jesus teaches who he is in this passage by teaching why he befriends this way. And that's the next thing I'd like you to, to see is why Jesus, what Jesus says about his befriending of sinners. Look at, look at verse 17 in your, in your Bible there. It says, so those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. It says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says, you know, this is, this is who I am. If these people look like the seriously ill and sick and dead, I'm here, and I'm their physician. I'm here for them. And there's this nagging question throughout the gospel of Mark is, who can get really close to sinners without sinning? And sometimes we, we ask that question, but I think it may be the wrong question. Instead of asking, how close can I get to sin without sinning? It's kind of, I mean, that kind of a question is like a nurse asking how close can I get to a patient without coming in some kind of contact without any germs? How close can I come to that person? You might, you might as well leave this world if you're going to start relating with people that way. There needs to be an internal immunity which is built up by learning to resist sin, by walking with Jesus in the context where there's actual sin present. It's an internal immunity that Christ would like to grow in us. But, but we, he would never have us ask the question, how can I keep as far away from sinners because I don't want to commit sin? He would not have us ask that. Instead, he would have us ask this, how can I get close enough to see this sinner healed, to see this sinner saved? How can I get close enough to see this sinner see Jesus Christ? That's the kind of question I think that Jesus would inspire his people to ask. A, a, a physician 
does not go in to a hospital to get sick. His motive is not to be entertained by sickness, but to heal. And Jesus here, he, he desired to enter into the actual sick world, the actual sinful world, and actually touch these people. Have close enough relationships that temptations would increase in his life, even as deliverance would be worked in their life. John, uh, John Orberg, in a book called God's Closer Than We Think, he, he tells a story of, uh, of a man named Father Damon who, in the 1800s, oversaw this village in Hawaii of lepers. And as he did this, he, he had incredible mercy for these people. He built, he built thousands of coffins because they didn't even have a place to be buried with dignity. He, he raised up, he preached the gospel constantly. He loved this tribe of lepers that were totally otherwise neglected, cared for their bodies. Incredible man. You can watch the documentaries on it. It's an amazing story. But in, in his life, as he, as he would uh, spend time with the people, he would get very, very close and he would... He often wouldn't wash himself after caring for somebody. He would eat in the same bowls that the lepers were eating from him. And he got incredibly close to the people. And he loved them. And they loved him for that. They didn't make him feel like they were the unclean, even though they were the unclean. And a day came when Father Damon stood up to, to preach his Sunday morning sermon. And, and he, he used two words to introduce his sermon. And he just said, we lepers... We lepers. Because now he wasn't just helping them. See, Father Damon had contracted leprosy. He had become one of them. And uh, now he wasn't just on their island. He was, he was in their skin. And he, from that day, loved those people like he never had before. He knew their pains, and he cared for them, even as he himself, with life and limbs, slowly became handicapped. My friends, the same I think is true of our God when he enters into the kind of sick sin in this world. One day when God comes to earth, he, he, in, he came not with saying you lepers, but by saying we lepers. And like Isaiah prophesied, it says that he poured out his soul to death, that he was numbered with the transgressors, that he bore our sin and the sin of many, and that he made intercessions for transgressors. He wasn't just there helping us. He was one of us. He took on our skin. He knew the effects of our sin. He knew that sick sinners needed a soul physician, someone who was incredibly close. I'd like you to understand this, that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ and his power to heal, he needed to, 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 to do two things with sinners. He needed both proximity and he also needed potency. If you were to ever go to a hospital, and you were to go to that hospital, and in the hospital, there, you were to show up, and you, you, you were bleeding. You know, your, your artery is cut, or maybe your arm is broken. Or maybe you go there, and you have cancer. Whatever, whatever it is, you show up at this hospital in ailment. And they were to just give you an aspirin, and they were to say, wait over there, a nurse will be with you in a few hours. Would you want to go back to that hospital? Even if they came back, you know, 12 hours later and they gave you another aspirin. What if they came back 14 hours later and they said, hey, are you still in pain? Here's a little aspirin for you. What's wrong with that picture? So when there's, when there's sickness in the house, what's needed is, 
is potency, actual drugs that are potent and powerful enough to help. What's also needed is, is proximity. You want a doctor who's near enough to understand what's going on with you. You need both proximity and potency. And, and one of the errors that you and I can, can commit in how we relate with other people, because Jesus brought both. He brought both. He brought potency, real, actual substance, real truth, real grace, something substantial. But he also brought proximity. He was incredibly near. He was willing to touch sinners. He was right there with them. Now, some of us make, it, we make, make an error one, one of two ways when it comes to eating with or being with sinners. One of our errors is that we're incredibly, we're full of potency with no proximity. But by that, I mean this, potency. You know your Bible like crazy. In fact, if someone were to ask you, where is it written? And they quote a Bible verse, you're the Bible guy. You know where it's at. If someone were to ask you a theological question, you could give the historical, theological insights that a scholar could give. And you are on the money. You, and in fact, not only that, you genuinely love Jesus incredibly. You're just like, Jesus is what my life is about. I spend hours praying. I love Jesus. I'm full of power. And if you were to ask that person, do you have any kind of relationships with people who don't know Jesus? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I, I got to spend time with, with St. John, you know, and, and with the Apostle Paul. But, but I'm going to keep a safe distance from, from people who are, who, are, who are sinful because I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to get involved in any of that. See, that's, that's who I am. I got potency, but absolutely no proximity to people who need that potency. It's like a, it's like a doctor who who's, lives in the pharmacy and just like, look at all these drugs. I know the names of all of them. Isn't that awesome? I know, where, I, I know where, what Paul says about salvation in Romans and, what, and where it's all going in the book of Revelation, but I don't dare share that with anybody. No, no, no. Some of us are like that. Some of us, on the other hand, are, are, are maybe a bit different. We've got proximity to sinners. There's actual sinners in our life that we know and care about. There are people in our neighborhood that we know their names. We, we drink a beer with them. We know where they're at. We have coffee with them. We get, we've gotten to know these people. They're near us. But, but when we talk with them, we, it's mostly about the weather and about how, how things are going with the job and uh, what's going on with children okay, that's good to know. And, but you totally lost the potency and the power of the gospel. You won't open your mouth and say, you know, I've been thinking a lot about Jesus lately. There's a story I read that, that's just been challenging me. You would never say that. You got proximity with no potency. And what's desperately needed in your life and in my life is for both of those realities to be present. To have proximity to sinners, real people who want to hear what you have to say because you genuinely love and care about them. But also, you have a mouth that's full of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you're able to speak it in a way that's well-seasoned, in a way that's actually caring. You and I need both of those realities. Now, what I'd like to, to, to wrap up in this sermon is this. I just want to ask you, how can this physician change us? My friends, if, if it's true that Jesus does this in your life and my life, things should change. I think that some of the ways that this would change us is, is, is in this way, is that Jesus Christ would make us unafraid to be the sinners that we are. He, if we really believe what we see in this passage, 
that Jesus Christ will make us unafraid to be the sinners we are. I, don't, I didn't say that, that that justifies your sin, but it, you will be able to admit the kind of sinner you are, willing to say, yeah, I am messed up. Sometimes our, our, we, we, we shrink away from admitting our, our sin and we totally deny while doing that the love of the Father. It's almost like we were a kid who we broke the lamp in the, in the living room and we're afraid that dad is going to be so angry with us that we just get our bicycles and we run away. And we're biking down the street in the neighborhood and dad finds out, he sees the broken lamp, he's like, where's my son? Oh, he broke the lamp. He must be a shit. Oh, where's his bike? Okay, he's... He's running for it. And we thought that our dad would be incredibly angry when he found us. But instead, he's excited that an hour later, after you're driving down Burnside, that he found you. And the dad comes up and he, he embraces you. That, that's more what's going on here. The dad doesn't care that much about the lamp. He cares about you. He cares about me. If it's true that what we see in this passage, we're going to become unafraid to just be, deal with our sin and say, yeah, I broke the lamp. I did. Father, I'm willing to come back home and not think you're going to beat the tar out of me. We need to recognize that. Another, another change that will happen is how we, uh, how we relate with Jesus. By that, I mean that we're willing to let him do the soul surgery, that when he finds us, we're willing to say, okay, Jesus, you see who I am. Would you teach me something? Because I've really screwed my life up. I've really messed up. Would you help me? And one of the things that sometimes we feel like the real pain in our life is there because God wants to mistreat us. But the reality is when we got soul sickness, the real pain is there because there's a serious problem. And, and Jesus doesn't just say, hey, you know what? This guy's got a, 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 a tumor over here. And because of that, we're just going to totally let him get high on weed all day long and just forget any surgeries. That's not how Jesus treats his people. He says, you know what? I care enough that we're going to have to cut into that. It's going to be painful. But I care enough. That, and, and, and this is where how we relate with Jesus changes. We don't run and hide and aren't afraid. Instead, we say, all right, you know, I, I would, this is the way one old Puritan put it. He said, I would take any wound to get the hand of that physician on me. We start seeing the wounds of our life, the pain of our life, and say, you know what? That was so that Jesus can get his hands on me and can deal with my heart. But friends, that's how we need to start relating with Jesus. Saying, you know, that pain is there for a reason. He probably wants to do something in my soul. This also changes how we relate with others. And uh, this is where this little either insert or thing you're handed in, uh, with your bulletin comes in. I just want to show you a, a thing or two about this. You see, it's, I, I called it seven for the kingdom of heaven. I think there's probably at least seven people that you know who, who don't know Jesus, who you genuinely would love to see come into faith in Jesus. And, and I, I would like you to, this week, if you're willing to, and I know you're able to, it's really a matter of willingness, I'm going to ask you, if you're, if you're willing to, this week to pray and say, God, what, what people have you put in my life that I can influence with the gospel? What people have you put in my life? Who do I long to see in God's kingdom when it's all said and done? And then what I'd like you to do is just write out, those, write out seven names. Maybe it's seven, maybe it's Uncle, maybe it's number one is Uncle Jed. He lives down in Southeast Portland. Maybe number two is the barista that you see every single day. And you just, you care about them, but you haven't, you haven't even prayed for them ever. Maybe number three is your neighbor. A neighbor you've known for five years, uh, but haven't ever talked with, about Jesus with them at all. Maybe number four is a coworker 
that, yeah, you see them every day, day in, day out, and you've tried to make a peep about Jesus one time when it came around Christmas time, but you never really prayed for them either. Maybe number six is, is your Aunt Thelma across the street. Maybe number, maybe number seven is your son, who you know needs the gospel of Jesus. Whoever it is, pray, pray about what seven people can I daily be praying for? And I would just challenge you to put this in your Bible and to, to starting this week to pray every single day for those seven people. Every day. I'm not, if you forget one day, don't be like, I broke my vow. Don't vow. Just pray, okay? When you open it, use this as your bookmark. And when you open up to the passage you're reading, just pray for those people. Pray for them regularly. And then what inevitably will happen is you'll start caring for those people. You'll, you'll care about how you talk to them and how you treat them. And maybe there's something kind you could do for that person. And inevitably, you'll, you'll not only pray, pray for the person and care for the person, but you'll start sharing with that person. I would encourage you to let it happen very naturally, but let God lead you in prayer for those people. Because I'd like you to know in this passage that we just looked at, the meaning is not wrapped up in understanding individual words. That's not where the meaning is found or certain phrases, but it's actually understanding how this is supposed to change your heart and your lifestyle, how it's supposed to challenge and change you with the core of your habits. If it doesn't change us, then the truth is we haven't learned it the way we should. If, if, we, if we don't have a genuine love for sinners, we haven't really learned mercy yet. If our learning hasn't gotten us to a place where we're willing to sit and eat with somebody, we have to relearn every single thing that we supposedly know. My friends, Jesus ate with sinners. He ate in people's apartments. He ate in their places. And as disciples, we are called to eat with others for Christ's sake because we have the doctor with us. And the power of the gospel is still potent today. We can befriend sinners now because we know the great physician who cares about them. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you that you loved sinners and that you loved us. Lord, we praise you that uh, you care about the neighbors and family members and the people in our lives who need Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to care the way you do because we genuinely don't, and we need to. Would you help us, Lord? Help us to remember all that you did for us at the cross and to live in light of it. We ask in Jesus' good name. Amen.